welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and today we're talking with Harris Zambra-Lucas, BSCGSC, the DP of the film Belfast, which uh, is getting tons of awards attention, um, and rightfully so. Uh, Harris has shot, uh, you know, he shot Thor, he shot uh, Death on the Nile, he shot Murder on the Orient Express, he shot Cinderella and Locke in the same year, which he uh, mentions. Uh, he, he just an incredibly prolific, uh, beautiful cinematographer, both in his work and uh, in the old, in his mind. Um, I, th- this conversation, I can't uh, understate, was fantastic. One, because Harris is such a uh, lovely person to talk to, very easy to talk to, but also, you know, I felt like I was receiving an education with uh, every uh, every question. You know, like, <laughs> at a certain point, I had to... You know, you, you can always tell when someone's about to wrap up their answer. And then I usually have like a thought for the next one. And a lot of times I caught myself going like, oh, stop listening. Start, <laughs> you know, like coming up with another answer. Uh, I, I could have talked to Harris for another 17 hours. Um, you know, before we had this conversation, uh, I had not seen Belfast yet because uh, it had um, recently come out and I hadn't had a chance to see it. I have since seen it in a nice uh, intimate theater, uh, which was really the way to see it if you can't although seeing it with more people generally with films is better but uh boy what what a what a what an achievement that film is um you know i, I always say i like to keep these intros short and this one's going to be no different but uh truly um loved this one so i think uh this might be one that you come back to and listen to uh, again um and i certainly you know when i'm editing these things i uh kind of chip through to make sure there's nothing I need to cut out, get it all dialed in, uh, and then render it. And in this one, I ended up (laughs) listening to the whole thing again. You know, we talk about, you know, the classic film school thing, uh, you know, film versus digital hair shoots, a lot of film, a lot of 65, in fact. Um, You know, we talk about just uh, artistry in general. I know I say artistry in general. I got to come up with new words, don't I? I? I... no, you listen to yourself enough and you realize the things that you say over and over again probably get annoying, especially for my friends. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, uh, asides aside, uh, really proud of this one and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So without any adus to be furthered, another phrase I say too much, uh, here's my conversation with Harris Samar Lucas. The way we like to get started is just kind of asking where... Um, you kind of got where, where creatively you started. I understand you kind of were interested in painting and stuff like that, but as a kid, like what was kind of, or maybe not as a kid, but as you were young, you know, like where, where your creative influences coming from? Oh, understood. No, great. So, um, I grew up, uh, in Cyprus, which is an Island in the Mediterranean. Um, and, uh, I definitely had a love of art from a young age. My parents are not artistic, um, and I don't come up from a family of artists. Quite, um, I would say, more mathematicians and engineers and kind of uh, science-based skill sets. But they were very, they were, they were very encouraging, and um, and I had some good art teachers. So I had a love of art. I would say that's really the beginning of where um, maybe um, 
kind of an appreciation for art and an encouragement from parents. It's amazing. Having made a film like Belfast, you kind of have to revisit in a way your own uh, family past and, and their influences. And um, um, I do think Ken's family in Belfast is a wonderful one and an encouraging one. And, and um, I saw many kind of similarities there. Um, but I, I, I would, I would, credit my parents for, for many things, um, especially for us being from a small kind of um, island and a modest family. Um, they, uh, that, that nurturing kind of openness to say, just be yourself and explore what, what you enjoy, um, I would say was the beginning of it all for me. Yeah. Were you, uh, were a lot of movies coming into Cyprus at the time? Were you watching a lot or was that, was it more photography and, and painting as we said? Certainly I had no interest in cinema at the time, although I watched films. Um, Cyprus has a little bit of a troubled past as well. Uh, we were invaded in 1974, um, by Turkey and many Cypriots had to, uh, leave the island. Um, I'm not a refugee, uh, uh, kind of, we, we live just near the, the green line, but, um, it certainly affected the economy and, uh, uh of the island and, uh, and many people kind of left my dad being, uh, an engineer and working in the construction industry. Um, we, we moved to Dubai for a few years. Construction was booming in the, in the seventies. It was a, yeah. It was a desert and it suddenly became a city. Uh, so kind of, um, and it was very, very international. I mean, I sat in my school, I sat next to, um, I remember I was, I was a kid, but like Chester was my best friend from India next to me. Behind me was Angus from um, Scotland and Marcus from um, Holland. And that's the kind of um, uh, childhood I, I had a very, kind of open one and mixed one. And um, there wasn't much television at the very beginning in Dubai in the early 70s. So we used to have to um, go to the souk and we bought a Super 8 projector to watch film. Because there was, I mean, when I mean there was no television, there was nothing. So yeah. I used to watch Super 8 films as a kid. Um, you could get 20-minute um uh, shortened, condensed films um, that you could play on a great project at that time. And we, we could get one film a, a week. So they were, they went from like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and films like that, 20 minute reels of them, uh, down to kind of things like a 20 minute version of The King and I, or um, films like, I remember Herbie Goes to Hollywood, you know, the Volkswagen? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'd watch a lot of um, Herbie movies, 20-minute uh, um, versions of. Um, and then television came, and they actually had a really, when television did come to Dubai, they, they, they were a kind of, it was an affluent country that could afford to buy kind of the best from everywhere. So right. um, from nothing, it went to kind of everything was available. Um, I moved back to Cyprus when I was 11 in 1981. Um, uh, kind of limited, but good television there, kind of uh, well thought, um, kind of um, administration of the Cyprus Broadcasting Corporation that um, uh, did have quality programs, basically. And 
and did bring a lot of things from elsewhere. And there were cinemas, of course. But my influences in those days were really kind of entertainment, you know, what, what a teenager would watch, um, you know, from Back to the Future to Blues Brothers to things like that in the 80s. Um, um, so I never really thought of cinema as such. I loved photography, though. I, when I went back to Dubai, I, from Dubai to Cyprus, I, I started photography. So I started going to a darkroom, age about 11, 12. Um, and I just saw that as part of my kind of painting exploration. Sure. Um, um, and never put two and two together. Really. Uh, yeah. It, I'm, I'm wondering uh, just about, do you remember like the first time you saw a full length version of one of those 20 minute films you had seen? A really good question. Do you know what? Um, probably, probably much later. I'll tell you what I do remember though. Um, um, I saw a play in London we came for a family holiday and I saw a, a, a play of The King and I. So actually one of the first experiences I had was just seeing a West End um, a musical of one of the 20 minute reels. And it was it just, I have to say my first experience in the theater, especially it was such a closed thing to then kind of get this one week in London uh, and your eyes just like, I'm, I, literally they pop out of your, uh, of your head to go to something like that it, it right. was a, a shattering experience um it's good that you uh really took to that because i could imagine if you were used to the cadence of a 20 minute film and you sit in the theater <laughs> and you're like man they're really dragging on like, they <laughs> this, uh... <laughs> well thankfully by then cinemas and television had arrived so i would say that my super eight days of only super eight days were probably up until about six or or Gotcha. Uh, or seven and then after gotcha. that it was full but i still have the super eight projectors and i still have every single reel no um, kidding and, oh yeah yeah and, and i would splice them so i so for birthday parties and stuff um that's what i would do i would splice the films together and i'd do a one a one hour show for my um um uh, uh classmates basically so um Yes, that, I mean, I've never really thought of it much until recently, but that must have made, had an impact. Um, sure. It must have had an impact on me. It, uh, do you have any fond memories of the darkroom? Because I remember I didn't, I, I got into photography when I was in uh, high school. You know, it's funny. I was like, oh, I would always be grabbing my mom's like VHS or Hi8 camera when I was little, you know, six years old. I remember I made like a commercial for Quick and Bright, which was a cleaning product mm -hmm. that was on, you know, I, I, for some reason I was into infomercials or maybe that's just all that was on when yeah. I was watching TV, but uh, got into photography when I was in high school, and, but only got into film when I was in film photography when I was in college. Um, so I, I was coming at it a little more mature, but the darkroom experience I will always remember as being quite um, magical. You know, there was never enough time. They're like, oh, your time's up. You got to go to the next class. And I'm like, no, nah, I can stay, you know. <laughs> started scheduling it differently well i was lucky there because the school had a photographic society and there were only about five of us being members so i have to say i did play hooky from a few lessons um to to get to the darkroom and you could always stay after school um and then on top of that my best friend who lived down the road um his dad had a, a, a photography shop and he had a darkroom in his house so um 
I, I mean, I spent hours and hours and hours in a dark room. And um, to this day, I still, you know, I, I've spent, it's such, it's such a voodoo art, uh, photochemistry. Um, it really, to get it right, um, takes, takes a lot of trial and error, um, um, a lot of precision. Um, and of course the results are rewarding, but they, they come at a, they really come at a, a, a cost. And I'm just not, it's not just the chemical cost, but it is the, the, um, uh, it's everything, the time cost as well. Did that, did that experience of, of needing to take that time and, um, you know, that, that, uh, not dedication was the word I'm looking for that process, you know, cause, cause I, we talk a lot on this podcast about how, you know, the transition from film to digital and the guys that mm-hmm. guys and girls that shot, uh, film in the past have sort of this um, process that seems to have carried over to digital, which has been helpful. Did you find that at all going from like learning film at first? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it also, you are the first kind of analysis of your own mistakes. When you give yeah. a negative to someone, um, they process it. They look at it and they say, mm, you know, and then they try to print it and they're like, well, you know, it's a little thin or the exposure is not right or, or, you know, you should have framed, especially in those days, kind of both black and white. And still, I mean, it wasn't that, it wasn't that forgiving. Um, it, you, you, you really, really kind of were aware of your own um, mistakes. I think that's what the darkroom um, kind of uh, taught me very very well. It wasn't just about taking the photo. It was the whole process and that ownership. And also, um, yes, it's, it's, it's very self analytical, I would say. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's fascinating. I've never thought of that because that the today, you know, in today's world, everything is so immediate or people, if you're making something, you know, something I've noticed is the, the behind the scenes footage usually gets a lot more attention than the film you're making. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, digital photography, you know, you take a picture, it instantly goes online or whatever. Yeah. And uh, being able to sit there and kind of cultivate your photo or your film or whatever it may be, um, and then show it to people is is a lot more akin to perhaps painting or whatever. But I feel like that experience is a lot more pleasant. You know, you're you're happy with this and then you go, all right, how about that? Versus, hmm. uh, this is done, you know, and having everyone immediately judge you. <laughs> well, that whole process in every aspect, i.e. that, um, A, if you, even if you take the decisive kind of moment that uh, right. Katia Pinson used to talk about. So you've got 36 um, exposures in your, your stills camera. So everyone has to count. If you've gone out and you're on the streets, which is what I like to do, I wasn't, interested that much in, in studio photography. I was interested in a kind of um, uh, documentary, photojournalism, magnum style photography. Um, you've, you've only got so many exposures. And if, if you're changing a role at a given moment when, when, when magic's happening, you've missed it. Um, so there's that. Um, then there is, on top of that, while you're taking that photo, the technical aspects of it. Um, uh, I mean, I used to shoot with a Nikon FG till I could get an F3. And then I moved to a, in early twenties, I, I moved to a Leica M3. 
um, yes. for for a reason. I would set this is when I moved into kind of uh, cinematography, and that's what I wanted to pursue. Um, I would pretty much set my um, shutter speed at a fiftieth, use only four hundred ASA uh, stock, and not use a light meter. And um, I thought I have to learn to expose like a a a motion picture camera does. So I would calculate the exposure, get used to one film stock, one shutter angle. That's the exposure. I have to get it right. And of course, you know what? Focusing in a rangefinder, especially you know a 1930s um, rangefinder, is like. Yeah. Um, before you even look at your subject matter and you want to get a, um, a a good image, you've got to calculate how far they, that is anyway. So you have to have your own kind of um, rangefinder in your head. Uh, you have to have your own light meter in your head. And that's before you even have to kind of figure out, well, what kind of a shot do I want to do? Um, so all of this comes, you, you don't just haphazardly take a photo, you plan it. I would, I'd like to go to that event. I'd like to be there at that time. I'd like to capture something. I want magic to happen. I want to improvise. I want to have all this technicality um, underfoot. Um, and then I'm going to go to a dark room and I'm going to figure out whether I got it or I didn't get it um, and have something to show for it. But yes, you become disciplined and you, 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 you do learn. <laughs> Yes, you become disciplined, but you also, you learn to do what Ansel Adams always said, is that you've got to imagine a picture before you take it. Yes, yes. You know, that's something I th we were just talking about. I've been ripping through interviews this week, and so they're all kind of blending together. But uh, that was something we were talking about where um, that need to uh, imagine the picture has kind of gone with digital cinematography. There seems to be a lot more... Um, we have the general idea. We've got a script. Let's just plop a bunch of cameras down, shoot as much coverage as possible. We're going to find this guy in the edit, you know, yeah. versus a lot more, um, let's say, single camera decided, you know, uh, what was the film? Um, Guillermo del Toro's most recent film, Nightmare Alley. Nightmare that felt Alley. very composed and decided Absolutely. and, you know. And Dan's cinematography on that was outstanding. Outstanding. Amazing. Every frame. Yeah. Um, do you, uh, what are some of the things about digital cinematography that you think have helped you? Cause I think, I feel like I've talked too much on this podcast about how, uh, the old ways were well, better, but that's, you know, me. <laughs> I've enjoyed it. I mean, I, I've only done four films digitally. So, mm -hmm. um, um, I still shoot a lot of film. I still shoot large format. I'm kind of fortunate enough to have shot two 65 mil films as well. Uh, nice. from beginning to end, um, which in itself is complicated. And um, no doubt about it, I do find it easier. Um, um, the digital cinematography is definitely uh, easier in many, many ways. However, you can't, unless you do all these things, I still approach things, it's embedded in me. You know, I, I was taught to paint by sketching, uh, researching, um, figuring out, you know, what kind of a canvas, what you want to say, what colors, and gradually getting to a painting. I transferred that to stills photography and then into my cinematography. So um, I like to plan. I like to think about things. Um, um, 
And I also like to grade a lot because I loved being in a, in a, in a darkroom. So I've just applied it in a certain way. I think the methodology um, has to remain the same for me, but I may be, maybe I'm too traditional. Maybe I'm just an older generation of cinematographers that grew up and, and was taught a certain way. But I see that is such an embedded process for me now. Um, um, uh, and it goes all the way to, I assume nothing at the beginning of every film, i.e. I will, I have to start testing all over again to find what's right for this script and what's right for this film. Um, and that research, I think is just part of that analog process for me. Yeah. Well, and I feel like that's, um, well, one, I want to say that, uh, kind of the reason why I asked those kind of questions is because not because I think that like the, the old school traditional way is the best, but because I think a lot of, um, those because this podcast is supposed to be somewhat educational and i think a lot of people coming to it may be younger and learning a lot on youtube for instance which is a lot of times amateurs teaching amateurs and i think uh the old school sort of traditional way that you speak of is um still incredibly valuable to know as you're saying like starting from nothing i think is is kind of maybe a good like single point uh analog to that idea, you know, not going, I've got the best camera I can afford. I'm always going to do everything the same way. It's like, well, what does this project need? You know, um, there's an interesting story. I forget his name, but the man that invented Velcro, um, um, is a, the, uh, is from, is, is Swiss and he used to take walks in the Alps. And, um, one day he noticed that something was sticking to his socks when he took his walks. So he um, one day decided to just pluck one of those um, um, seeds that had stuck to his socks and, and look at it. And he thought about it and he thought there's an application here. And that's how he invented Velcro. Now, there's three things that happen there that I think apply to everyone and, 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 and life generally. Um, first of all, he observed something. Then he contemplated it. And then he acted upon it. Now, those three things really form the basis of, for me, kind of the process of cinematography and filmmaking. Um, they're no different. It's a kind of, it's a work ethic in a way and a, and a process. But um, we find most of our inspiration by observing it, um, you know, in nature and the world around us. It's, you know, in, in particular in filmmaking, it, it's most often the human condition or it is, and, and that's affected like by, you, you would set a scene that you, uh, that you want to, to set at a time of day that you've observed or in a place that you've observed that you've then thought about and seen some significance in it. And then, and then, but then of course, the final and most difficult thing is, is you have to act upon it. Um, and if you miss one of the, I think, observation contemplation processes, you're going to throw everything at the action without knowing what you're trying to do. And I think that might be something of what you were describing earlier. Um, you've missed the first two processes. Yeah. You know, uh, I spent two years ago, I spent, I don't know, maybe it was three time is strange right now. Uh, <laughs> I spent an entire year only doing black and white photography. Um, and I would always, prior to that, 
I would notice nice light and I would take a picture of it and I'd go, oh, it doesn't really look the way I like saw it. And then when Mm -hmm. I started doing only black and white photography, it really immediately taught me how to photograph light, (laughs) which I thought was so weird because like in color, light can just be whatever. But when you when you're shooting black and white, you realize like, oh, I was way overexposing these. I wasn't exposing for the light. I was just shooting haphazardly. I wasn't composing this at all. Mm -hmm. Um, When you uh, applying that sort of uh, observance to street photography, do you I assume you're saying you're not you don't like walk around with your camera and just oh, oh, do you think about um, a street corner that you've seen before and yeah. go back to it or is it more I discovery think, yes than that? i do and i had um so um i did i went to st martin's school of art in london and i went to study painting and i switched to cinema that's where i discovered cinema um, um that had a dark room and uh it also i did a lot of photography in the streets of london and the light never played that much of a difference because it was always great I then when I went to the American Film Institute, I would go to downtown L.A. and take um, uh, uh, stills photos. And there was one homeless gentleman that I observed um, uh, often um, in downtown. And he would preach sermons and he had a big sign, Jesus saves, um, on his a placard that he hung around his neck. When I first saw him, just it was kind of bright California sunshine, uh, probably midday, I remember. And um, he had his head back like that, kind of, and it was, it just looked quite biblical. Um, but the sun was wrong, and, and he was too front lit, um, and he just blended in with the background, and the, and the contrast was gone. His skin tone was terrible. And I thought I'd just nailed it, uh, an absolute. Uh, cracker of a photograph and I went back to the dark room and I looked at it and I'm like I'm so disappointed in myself <laughs> so, um, I thought well he, he, he I'm sure that's his corner so I just went back at, at you know and I thought well you know I've got to get him at this street it's a east to west street it's it's going to be better at five o'clock in the afternoon and um, I managed to get a better photo but um, I think, yes, you do have to kind of consider it, but it could be lost. Um, I happened to kind of focus that part of my attention to um, someone who obviously had a, um, a particular corner and, a, and something to say, and there was something repeatable about it, and it really just needed the right light and the right time of day. Yeah. But it's always great to... Uh, I just recently got a little Fujifilm uh, sort of pocketable mm-hmm. uh, d- camera that they make, the X100. And um, it is very nice to, I love the camera so much, but it is very nice to always, even if you don't quite get the shot that you're looking yeah. for, it's always nice to have the camera on you and like teach yourself something in that moment. It's yeah. uh, And sometimes, like you said, you hit gold, but um, nowadays, like, oh, it's, it's so nice to have that thing with you. <laughs> And that camera can actually crop out to a 16 by nine. So a lot of times I'll, like you were saying earlier, like I'll start shooting it like a, um, a cinema camera or what have mm-hmm. you try to think and composite. How did, um, I have a very strange 
tangential brain. Uh, how did AFI kind of affect your filmmaking career? Because I've been talking to a lot of AFI graduates recently, and it seems like uh, they all sort of hit the same stride, as it were, where it's like they get out of AFI and now they're working on films. Is it the community that you build there or is there something else? It is the community. First of all, it is an excellent school. So uh, you, you start there. But I also think their system where they, which is like, a, you, they pair off directors and producers and writers and kind of there's an equal amount. It, it, you, um, I made my first feature film with a director, uh, Hamlet Sarkissian, he, he wrote a script at AFI, we'd made a short film at AFI. He wrote his script in, in the screenwriting program there. He was a director there um, as well. And um, we wanted to make this first film, Camera Obscura, and we made it together. So um, in a way, it was like an extension of the film school. Um, but it was, it was a place where I met like-minded people. Right. Um, um, and not just like-minded, but in a similar place in their um, uh, development. So Hamlet and I were certainly uh, two people that had a shared aesthetic, uh, kind of a love of similar films, and 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 our development was was at the same place, if you see what I mean, and yeah. therefore we could grow together. Uh, on on you know we made a film together and that that and that really kind of was the beginning. Um, so it it wasn't just the the work done at the school it was the friendship and the creative friendships because filmmaking is a is a team um, it's so it's certainly not the solitary painting you know I think that's the one thing as soon as I kind of saw that cinema was possible and that that was a viable form of kind of expression of creativity, et cetera, and that I might be useful um, and be able to contribute to, to uh, this um, kind of aspect of society. Um, I found great pleasure in the community of it. Yeah. Which I think you can only nurture in, in an academic environment in the beginning. So I feel that people who didn't have uh, a film school and managed to start were just people that happened to be in the right place with the right people and found that kind of maybe uh, through family connections or accidentally, but for, uh, you know, again, I'll go back to my experience on Camera Obscura as an early one, but um, for a someone from Cyprus, with no family connections in film, who was really quite a big deal to just go to university and, and study something, let alone something outside of being a doctor or a, an engineer or, or, or something like that. I then met someone, uh, Hamlet was an, also an immigrant from Armenia, um, a his dad was a, you know, he was a political kind of uh, refugee. Amnesty International took his family to America. But we, I think we were, we were both children of the diaspora, grown men at the time, but um, a product of the diaspora um, and certainly a product of um, achieving things through education, which is a very old world kind of um, uh, aspect of, of 
kind of um, pursuing something in life. Um, yeah. And I, I think we both took our education very, very seriously and that and not for granted and that it was a real blessing and a real opportunity and therefore you know when we went there and we saw that we could do something together you you, you cherish that let's put it that way um uh, and you and you make the most of it we certainly weren't um kind of taking it for granted yeah you see what i mean so those are the kinds of things i think afi or some film school might be able to give you if that makes sense yeah, I mean, that's basically what we've said about most film schools is like a lot of times AFI might be different, but uh, a lot of times the film school itself isn't necessarily or may not necessarily teach you about making movies the way that you're expecting, but the people around you are what you're going to gain from it. Um, I certainly lucked out and screwed up at the same time i lucked out because me and 12 of my friends all moved to la at the same time so we've kind of you know helped each other out but um i kind of screwed up in the sense that i was you know i was working for red bull at the time having fun you know i was president mm -hmm. of the snowboard club so i was you know enjoying college and not really i was still in film school but like you know i'd go to film class and i enjoyed them i loved being in film classes but i was always like my next thought wasn't like, man, we should write something and shoot something now. It was like, well, I'm going to go yeah. snowboarding now, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, also those, like you, it's not accidental. So I would credit AFI for the choices they made of their students because they have many applicants and, 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 and they certainly had something that they were looking for. I would say that they, they pick very well and for different reasons and, and they expect you to have a kind of consciousness and they expect you to uh, pursue filmmaking for kind of with some kind of Artistic intrigue merit. in the human, well, intrigue in the human condition, in, intrigue in the kind of social makeup of the world. Um, so whenever we, if we tackled those kind of subjects, that's when we were kind of applauded and encouraged. Mm. Um, so I think that, that there was something going on there in the selection process. Um, and there was huge merit in the, I found in, uh, in the program and in that pairing as well, that, um, you would, you know, you, you, you would have to pair up and like you do in real life. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And 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 get a you know almost interview for a job and um, and get along and um, share a, a kind of common ideas and aesthetics. How would you uh, go about doing that um, sort of outside of the educational um, uh, framework? You know, you, maybe a, a DP has become very knowledgeable um, and experienced, has something to offer, but doesn't have that network. I know that's a common problem for a lot of people. And I had, I didn't really have a network when I, after AFI and after that, especially when I moved back to London. Um, for me, the way it worked was I had a film and that film had a particular aesthetic and that was Camera Obscura. And the next film, was with some, you know, I went to, to, we went to film festivals with Hamlet and our producer, Tessos 
uh, as you know, and um, we met a few people then. And I also took camera obscura uh, to Cameramage. So my next job I got through Cameramage, through showing that film at Cameramage. Um, Paul Sarossi, a great Canadian cinematographer for Atom Agoyan, was there with uh, one of Atom's films. I think it was The Sweet Hereafter then. And um, uh, he saw Camera Obscura. And he was offered a very, very low budget kind of directing gig um, in London called Mr. In Between. Um, but, and I got on very well with Paul because, again, he, he has a similar aesthetic. And, and that just, and it was one after the other. It wasn't a huge network. It was the, for me, it was the work kind of uh, took me somewhere. And I was lucky because Camera Obscura was a very good film and had, you know, was really well made and, and, and had an aesthetic and had a point of view and, and was, uh, you know, really well directed and written. So it attracted kind of, when I then went for a second job, it attracted directors that were interested in that form of directing. Because I think when you go from film to film as a cinematographer, you know, I think directors are not just looking at your cinematography, but they're, they will obviously be kind of, I think, honed into uh, a cinematographer who's worked with people that they would identify as well with and films right. that they identify um, uh, with as good films. And each one is a stepping stone. So I would say um, um, once you have made your initial work, I believe the only course of action for people that don't kind of have either networking skills or anything, it's just through the work. And that would be film festivals. Yeah. So that's the next, that's the kind of, um, I, don't, I don't see any other way forward for people really. Um, that's the only thing that's available. You know, it's funny. Uh, one of my 12 friends just uh, he worked on a documentary called In the Dark of the Valley for uh, fuck three years, something like that. And um, three, four years. And it's about the Santa Susana Field Lab up here in L.A. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the, if not the largest nuclear disaster in the country that no one knows about seeping into the ground where all this stuff and, uh, you know, took it at film festivals. And he won in the documentary category like four out of the seven, I think that he entered. And, um, he said kind of the same thing. He like got back and he was like, yeah, I didn't know that. Like he, I mean, he knew, obviously he knew, but it didn't like fully hit him until he got back that like those, that those opened so many doors for him. Uh, MSNBC bought the doc mm -hmm. and they, they aired it like five times, you know, and this is something that he and another friend of ours shot themselves. He edited it over the pandemic in his room you know, there was no fanfare. It was just the two. He was texting me every day. Hey, in premiere, how do I save? You know, <laughs> stuff like that. And uh, ended up, you know, winning all these awards and ending up on television. So I, I think that is uh, that does check out over here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of shifting gears. Uh, you've you've had a pretty prolific career thus far, um, hitting kind of a, a, a handful of interesting corners of cinema you know you've got your mama mia on your one side and your thor on the other and um you know belfast and also i was just looking at your imdb and it's funny how it's like murder on the orient express oh no wait sorry i was getting that confused with death on the nile um because i saw murder on the orient express i was like that was great didn't that already come out mm -hmm. um but are there anything uh 
Is there anything that you do between these films that kind of you could point to as your signature, whether it be visually or the way that you work or anything like that? You mean in between films, how I... Well, because they're uh, also different, you know, they, they all call for different, you know, a Jack Ryan film is not Mamma Mia. But is there anything between the two that you can point to and go like, that's something that I do personally? So, like a little, maybe a little flair that you enjoy? <laughs> yes, I mean, I, I enjoy all the films and I look for something different. So I, I made Locke and Cinderella the same year. Um, <laughs> Very um, different. Yes. Um, and I take a lot of time off in between if I can. Um, I'm not, you know, I work as much as I can and I have to, but, um, I I can't go at it all the time. You know, I can't go back to back to back to back. Um, I find it exhausting and I think, um, and, um, and I need some, I would say the best thing I do is not obsess over cinema. Mm. Uh, I love to, I'd rather be surfing most of my life. I, I could do that for 10 hours a day. If I had a choice, um, I'd run to the ocean way before I ran to a, a film set. Um, and, and I think that's, I think you need something like that. Uh, you know, I run to my children and my family and my wife. Um, that's way more important. Uh, that interaction, those kind of, kind of human things are the things I think that, um, help me make uh, a better contribution when I am on a film mm. because it, it, it kind of, one of the, one of the things I noticed, um, for example, on thought, and it's about, I think it's about kind of clearing the hard drive in a funny way, but sure. Um, when I was grading thought it was a really intense grade, um, with Steve Scott, amazing colorist. Um, and we worked very, very long hours. And I would go a little later rather than very early in the morning. And we'd work till late at night. Um, so I'd go in at 10. And one of the reasons was I wanted to surf in the morning. So I was living in Manhattan Beach and driving to Fox to grade. And um, I, by the time I finished and got home, I was so tired. Um, I'd pretty much eat something and fall asleep. Um, kind of a couple of weeks into it, I thought, I need to go out at night or do something. Um, and I stayed out a little later and I went back to grade and I couldn't grade properly. And I, I think the reason is if you're stuck in a dark room staring at a screen, you need something the opposite. You know, going out in the ocean and staring at the horizon and you've got just blue and blue um, and it's bright. Um, just that kind of clears the palette and helps you work better. And you can expand that to kind of your entire life, really. Um, I, th- I think you need to, um, I think I think everyone needs to kind of find some clarity of thought and of process um, to be able to contribute the best they can. And to be obsessive ends up being, I think sometimes, turns into ambition and ambition is really not a creative um, process. It's a competitive Mm. process and filmmaking is not a competitive process. It is a creative process. That's great. Ambition is a competitive process. That is, that is a good quote, my friend. That's, (laughs) I like that. It's, 
I think it's just the way things are. Yeah. No, I've just never thought of that like that because I, I, I like to think of myself as an ambitious filmmaker. And I was like, but you're right. That's that's compared to who? <laughs> like yeah. what? My output? Like <laughs> what does yeah, what does it mean either? And does it affect how does it affect your work? It affects it negatively. Yeah. You know, trying to get something out quickly instead of getting it out when it's done, for instance. Yes. Um, that's great. Um, more on a sort of a technical side, I, I over the pandemic, obviously, I, I couldn't shoot very much, uh, especially not at my level. And so I ended up kind of turning into a freelance colorist. I spent a whole bunch of time, you know, and I've, and I've gotten I love it. I absolutely love color grading. Um, I was wondering if you had any sort of general tips from working on these larger films and having a hand in uh, coloring them. Like what are some things that that lead to that look besides obviously proper ratios on set and, you know, lighting things appropriately and whatever. But once you get into the grade, what are some things that you're doing to really give it that, uh, I hate to use the word, but cinematic touch. Uh, I love the uh, color correction process and spend, I'm I'm there from the beginning to the end. Um, And I'm really fortunate. I've worked with absolutely kind of the best of the best in the world, I feel. And um, most recently, that kind of, uh, probably the last 10, 11 years, it's almost been completely with Rob Pitsy at Goldcrest. Um, I don't know how many films we've done together now, but um, I have learned from all the greats I've worked with, really. So um, I go from one session to another, for example, and, and you take something with you. But um, firstly, um, I wanna, I'll go through my process, and at least that process is the same. Um, I want to go through a picture and color grade the entire film as best as I can, as quickly as I can, so I can get the whole film done in a few days or within the first four or five days without going crazy about windows and eyes and all the details. And that way you have a complete, if not, if even if imperfect way of working. And I got this because that's how we used to grade um, film prints. Mm. So I made most of my film prints at Deluxe here with um, uh, Clive Noakes before he retired and very lucky to work with such a master for so long. But with Clive, when we made film prints, we would, you know, we'd get our first answer print. We'd look at it, make our notes, go back to it, do more notes, but we would do the whole picture. We never sat there obsessing frame by frame. So. The problem in a DI, I believe, is that people get in and they take the first frame and they throw everything at that first frame. Now, the story hasn't developed yet, really. Right. Um, because that narrative has to come out in the color correction as well. So my method is to just go through it, then go back, then go through it, then go back, then go through it, and then go back many, 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 many times, and then get into the details and more details as you go along. And what I found is that if you do it the other way, you end up making mistakes that you then have to correct because you, you've not gone down the right path. You've added all the, this detail into, say, the first, the first reel, um, and then you get to the third reel and you realize your concept is wrong. Right. <laughs> and then you have to go back and do it all over again. Um, and then you've lost the time. So, um, and this 
And this falls in line a little bit more with that kind of observing, contemplating and acting a little bit more. Um, um, and it lets you breathe and it seems to have a natural kind of rhythm to it by doing it this way rather than a forced one. And again, it becomes a bit more, I find it faster because it's a little bit more kind of uh, creative. And, and again, it's not obsessive in this way. Uh, you don't obsess over one little detail and miss the big picture. Yeah. That um, makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I certainly made that mistake where you get like the first little bit and you're, and you're uh-huh. like, oh, cause it can get very exciting when you get in the grade and you're yes. like, Oh, I can make this look cool. And like, I can make this pop and everything. And then you look at your, and you're, you're on clip five of four fifty, and you're just like, Oh, yes. it's going to take all day. And then you exhaust yourself just with the thought yeah. of it. <laughs> let alone having to go undo a bunch of stuff that doesn't fit. Um, Painters never made paintings that way. They didn't sit there and do the window to perfection (laughs) and then go to the the rest of the picture, did they? Um, they, They'd start with, they'd lay their base colors and and just add and add and get kind of um, more clarity and more detail as the painting progressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of kind of obsessive, uh, obviously the Marvel films are are very specific in the way that they're made. In the way, and I'm wondering, did you have that experience with Thor? Was that kind of pre-Marvel? And at the same time, uh, what is it like coloring something with that company? Like how how much more in the grade is happening versus you know your <laughs> Mamma Mia, which I assume is a little easier to grade. No, they were both really difficult to grade, actually. Oh, actually. Um, <laughs> and both studio films. I mean, um, and both... Uh, well, me had uh, 900 VFX shots in it. We shot 10 weeks in, in, in London and seven weeks in Greece. So that, you know, that entire hotel was built indoors in a soundstage on a 007 stage. The, the composite set, the mountain, everything. So I had to do a lot of that and a lot of in-camera VFX in, in that. So, so the grade was quite, uh, uh, quite a process on that. I Marvel were Marvel when I worked for them. Um, gotcha. They're some fantastic people running it, and they uh, uh, love what they do, and uh, they do it very well. And they certainly had um, their own ideas, but I, um, we shot on film, I believe. We were the last, not sure, but we were probably one of the last films to, Marvel films to shoot on film, mm. but we graded very well. Pete Mavromadis was the um, uh, uh, post-production kind of uh, 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 head at Marvel at the time, and 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 he loves the process. He got us all kind of the best, the best to to you know. We had Steve. I really enjoyed the process with him. Um, we delved into the world of three D as well, but um, we certainly had that look kind of baked into the film dailies from the, right. uh, uh, from the beginning. Um, you know, and I, and I, and we screened film dailies every day and we screened, we, so we did kind of selects in on film for that. And then HD dailies that we could basically follow the takes, um, yeah and see the performances and things like that. But, it, you know, with Ken, always, I've done eight films with Ken, there is nothing left to chance. We both really like to um, kind of 
decide what we're going to do, imagine what we're going to do, figure out what we're going to do, um, and then just go through the process of exploration and, and execution, really, in that way. So he's always very involved as well. Um, but um, I really enjoyed making Thor because I do love comics and, and, and just at least when I, it might be different from other people and, and um, yes, th those were early days, of course, um, yeah. um, but you just had things that I really loved. There were illustrators and, um, and kind of artists uh, on the lot. And if I had an idea or a shot and I, you know, I don't draw much anymore and I don't just don't have the time, but I, I could sit there with an illustrator and say, can you draw this for me? And they, they had, they had people that did this all the time. Um, you, you could, you could imagine something and slowly figure out how to do it. Um, I found it um, uh, a really kind of uh, uh, a great process. We had, we also had Bo Walsh as our kind of production designer. I mean, who's an Im immense artist, you know, just walking into his office and sitting down about concept art and, and what we wanted to look and drawing it out and, and figuring it out. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And the, and the post process was quite similar. And I also really enjoyed the doing the 3d of it all. So I would Good. grade. Yeah, I really, we, I would grade um, all day. And then we'd then go into grading in 3d because back then you had to do it separately um and you had to grade in, with 3d glasses on which is just painful um, <laughs> to wear them for so long but right. even and then we'd have uh stereo sessions where we really discussed the process and and if we didn't like something with ken in the stereo we would send it back and they'd redo it but we were it was a real it was a play it was narrative and the, and and thor in stereo is 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 it's pretty fantastic, I would say. It wasn't farmed off and someone does it and sends it back. Um, you know, that Ken has input there. I have input there. You know, Wes, um, our VFX supervisor, has tremendous input there. It was certainly not, you know, um, Victoria was very supportive of all of this, that we had input. Yeah. That's, I, I, I kind of wanted to know, because I, I, as far as I know, I've really liked all of Ken's films. Um, and I was kind of wondering what the process between the two of you is getting into, you know, Belfast and perhaps death on the Nile a bit, but like, um, what are those, what is that collaborative relationship like? And are there things that you think, um, other, uh, production teams, let's say could learn or apply that you, you guys do that you think is, um, po a positive influence? Um, there's certainly a mutual respect and a friendship there and a, a true friendship, not a networking friendship, but a, a friendship that comes from uh, uh, shared experiences and a shared kind of uh, view of what the human condition kind of is and what part of it to, of the human condition are interesting to storytelling. Um, but we break things down. You know, we just go through things and we break things down visually. We break things down, first of all, kind of to the heart of it. Like what's this all about? My first meeting with Ken was to kind of make sleuth now and and i remember i distinctly he helped me tell the story in the best way i could because he kind of we immediately we got into the psychology of it so i'll give you an example so 
Well, we sat down and talked about it and he said, what do you think of it? And I said, God, these people are really obsessive, aren't they? And he said, yes. Um, have you read the Scottish play? I said, yes, I know the Scottish play. Um, he says, well, do you know the affliction that the Scottish king had? I said, no. I, I mean, he was ambitious, wasn't he? He says, no, he suffered from clinical morbid jealousy. Um, and he said, let me describe a little bit about morbid jealousy and you should do your own research on this. Um, uh, the, um, Michael Caine's character um, in, in Sleuth suffers from morbid jealousy. So that immediately kind of gave me visual clues. I said, that's interesting. And he said, well, I don't want to do puppets and things like that that they did in the uh, 1974 version. What can we do that's technology-based that we can do? Um, I said, well, it's the surveillance, it's the cameras. There was a lot of that written in as well. Um, I said, maybe he has a really modern house where you can... He really controls the lighting. Maybe we can do kind of robotic lighting and LED lighting. He says, what's LED lighting? This is, back then there was no LED lighting, RGB. I mean, literally that was brand new. Um, half the units we used on that film were, were sent into the UK from a US factory and they literally had just been um, kind of created. Invented, yeah. <laughs> um, but... Um, uh, he said, there's all this surveillance footage as well. And I said, well, why don't, if he's, if he's so jealous all the time, why don't we go with kind of green night vision um, um, uh, uh, cameras? Um, and, and, and I said, I think I can find a way where we can shoot it. I can find something that I attach to the front of our anamorphic lenses and we can shoot it on film. So it's green phosphor night vision, real green phosphor, and we'll capture it on, on film in camera with no post-production. And I did some tests and that's how we, we, we did it. We, we, we did this shot where um, they're walking behind a um, kind of drinks uh, desk and um, uh, we, we framed Jude within a kind of cup. So like he's trapped in an upside down cup. Next to it is a green gin bottle. Um, it's subliminal, it's minor, but it gives you something, like at least you're informed. Uh, it could have been a, I don't know, a red wine bottle. That would have, uh, it probably would have worked, but we, we, it's a, if you're going to tell these stories at least, and you've got those ideas, follow them through. So that's an example of our thought process. You know, he feeds me with something, I feed him with something. Um, and, and then we talk to our production designer and our, editor and, and we all work together um, and we take things slowly and we don't take anything for granted. We don't go in there assuming that we know anything. Um, we go in there kind of assuming that we've got to start from scratch really. Um, and I test a lot. I mean, I've always just, I love to test. I left AFI where I tested all the time and pretty much, you know, I'm, I'm forever indebted to, to Panavision because um, they said, you just come whenever. I literally was in there every other week um, when I graduated. If I had an idea, I'd just use a test room and I'd do something in a hundred feet of film, no more. Um, you know, Kodak were fantastic. Deluxe was fantastic. Um, and I just, I used to build up libraries. I mean, I've got, you know, my cupboards are full of just tests and tests and tests and tests before I even had a film to, to, to use it on. Um, and it was that process never. So, and then when I get on a film, I'm doing even more tests because I, I don't assume I know anything. 
Um, it's the chef's approach. <laughs> Just tasting constantly. Well, you never really learn a craft. You just, uh, but when it starts giving anything to you, you need to move on. I think that's about, that's kind of how I see it. Yeah. Um, no, that's, yeah. It, I, I love that. Cause I'm, I'm <clears throat> a self self-proclaimed nerd and, uh, <laughs> testing anything is always fun. It's, you know, it's like, uh, Especially, I think it's kind of like the darkroom thing or maybe like in a Panavision tester. But when you can like get in a little office and just start goofing around, you start to lose time. And you just like, it's it's your own little fun little creative uh, room. And you, you've, just, you've just said something, you, you lose time. I think that's kind of, if you get lost in something and you, you lose a sense of time and place, it means you're really getting into it. And... Um, if you're conscious of time on set, or you're conscious of time on, on, and it doesn't, and it just doesn't flow, you 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 shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I. Well, that's part of. Uh, I, I know a lot of unhappy DPs. You know, they sh- and uh, I think an unhappy DP shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. Oh my God. The, I mean, the number of people who like have a bad attitude on set that you meet, you're like, why? Like we're, we're doing make believes, yeah. man. Like, what are you, <laughs> you're not digging ditches. <laughs> um, but that is, that is a, as Stephen Coulter or as people that he's standing on the backs of the giants that he's standing on the backs of, but the flow state is one part literally is the loss of time. Um, and, uh, whatnot and flow state is important to creativity well, you, but uh, you snowboard i mean it, it, you you it has to you, you get lost in it don't you um, absolutely it's the thing that always throws me off is when you're riding a lot and then you hit the top of a um the chairlift and you look into the chairlift box where the operator is and they always have a clock facing outward and you're like it's three you're like i got out <laughs> here at nine like when you know you start to see the sun go behind a mountain and you're like, oh, no, like it immediately gets a lot colder. That's when you become aware of time when the sun goes away. <laughs> and then it's frigid. <laughs> um, I, I assume surfing's the same way. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I want to make sure we talk about Belfast because I know it's a very personal experience for um, uh, Ken. And I was doing a little reading. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, unfortunately. But um, the... Uh, it seems that you guys kind of shot it more like a documentary. Well, I wouldn't say we shot it like a documentary, but we 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 decided on a certain aesthetic. Some of that was aesthetics that seemed to kind of feed the story better and uh, make it more lucid. And some of those things had to do with COVID. We shot, this was a COVID project. Mm-hmm. Um, we discussed it during the first lockdown. And as soon as restrictions were eased and we were allowed to film. We shot the film in five or six weeks. Um, and many of the things that we wanted to do, we took from not so much documentary, but photojournalism. So mm-hmm. I think the idea that you you set up a frame and it, and, and it tells a, a multi-layered story within a, a single frame, a long, we, we we shot long takes. Um, we barely moved the camera. Um, uh, people keep asking us, did we use a lot of depth of field? And I said, it wasn't really depth of field. It, it was really Ken's blocking. It's depth of action. 
So within a still frame, you would see things in the foreground, in the background, and and you could tell a story um, in that way, and and you could sustain a shot um, for much longer because there were interesting things happening, and they weren't uh, uh, on. They were kind of multi-dimensional in a way because um, uh, you and and you could get into it. You really could. It does. I think we really wanted people to just dive in and and feel a a loss of time, um, um, in a way. And and by being too cutty, I think you you can disrupt the uh, uh, the audience. So so I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was documentary because I I think documentary is found, whereas this was sure. certainly uh, meditated, um, and. In terms of a lighting scheme, I pretty much shot with available light throughout. Um, a teeny bit of lighting in the cinema and the theater and in the process shots, there were some kind of uh, process shots of the bus with Judy Dench and uh, Jude Hill. Um, but, and then we went back to the, and we would compose our shots so that the natural light created the depth. So if we wanted someone brighter, we'd move them closer to a window and we would just block that way. So um, we had contrast and we certainly controlled our contrast, but we, we didn't just do it with lighting. We did it with our, with our blocking as well and with our production design um, uh, in that respect. And then when we went into our grade, we certainly wanted something that was more glossy, more kind of a life, magazine spread um now those are are that's all kind of decisive moment type of photography um, carefully composed lots of depth um but the print the the lab work um it is really glossy so and i think when you marry those two you get something really interesting whereas if you did you know if um, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to shoot digitally rather than film on this is I didn't want any brain. Um, and I think digital, especially the LF mini with its kind of medium format. And then I use my kind of large format lenses that I use on my 65 more projects. So system 65 lenses from the eighties and the spheros from the sixties. And they're a very, very small set that exists, you know, that Panavision have, um, it's a very, very kind of specific type of uh, of photography and image, and it lends itself to to black and white. But um, you know, someone asked me, "Why don't you shoot sixteen mil and some grain and 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 this?" And I'm like, "No, it's a because that would have you would have jumped out of a nine. That is how old are you?" I asked them. They said, "I'm about um, at sixty. Well, that's a sixty-year-old man thinking." not a nine-year-old boy. I was trying to get into the mind of a, a, a nine-year-old boy and a nine-year-old boy doesn't see grain um, and, 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 uh, and doesn't see a distorted point. Uh, they were making a very good point and we were having a really, you know, it kind of in-depth conversation. And, but that was the reason. Yeah. Um, so, so I don't know. I think I've babbled it all out. Yeah, uh, that, that's great. 
Um, like I said at the beginning, that's what we're here for. I think, you know, letting <laughs> talking it out is, is half the joy, you know, listening to that. But uh, yeah, it's you know, what's funny is now that we've got large, uh, you know, quote unquote, large format, um, you know, your mini LFs, your C500, your Venice, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the images can be either in the grade or just how you make them can be so um, precise and very pretty. And that, and a lot of people are now like even more than before trying to go like, well, that's not the film look. And I, my theory about like the film look that everyone keeps talking about, quote unquote, is not actual film in many cases. I'm sure, you Mm -hmm. know, Steve Yedlin, like he's gone on and on about this. Uh, It's just people's memories of when they discovered cinema. So for that person, you know, 16 mil was like, well, when I was a kid, (laughs) you know, now kids these days, actually, when they think about like what we would call the film look, they're talking about VHS and mini DV. Yes. Which I have found fascinating. They're trying to not only that, that, even more, if you ask them, well, what's a modern look? They don't even think they find I, I find some kids don't even they don't like 24 frames per second. They, they live in a game world of 60 frames per second, which, yes. which I, I can't watch. I cannot watch. I find it disturbing um, and ugly. I find it, I actually find it um, um, abusive to my, my aesthetic. Um, but for many teenagers, I think that's, an, that's a, just their normal vision. Yeah, well, it, it also, I've heard it described as better. Yes, because it's you know it's 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 crisper. You know, it's like I can see it's better, and I'm like well, better to what? I find it's, it abusive, but that is that is what if that's that's if that if you live in a game world of sixty frames per second, then that's your that's your reality. Yeah, well, and it's funny too because like I you know I again huge nerd. I was a not anymore, but I was on a professional gaming team teams in the early 2000s back when we were all meeting in a Marriott you know for for 400 bucks uh and for a 400 dollar price but um you know of course we were always looking for like better frames per second because that helped you competitively but Mm -hmm. uh in my brain it was never I never combined the languages you know it film the film language was completely different Mm -hmm. I remember I had a Canon XL2 and I was shooting my uh group's meeting you know like our, our little LAN party and I shot it in 24 and widescreen and the whole, and I was making like a movie there. I didn't think, cause it had, you know, XL2 has a 60 switch. Yeah. Never thought to use it. <laughs> <laughs> but it is funny how that, the visual language is kind of being changed. It is, it is that, you know, that's, I'm going to have to have you back on for a second hour long discussion <laughs> on uh, <laughs> the visual language of, of um, modernity, because I, I have a lot of questions and theories about it. Um, unfortunately I've kept you longer than I should have. So I'm going to have to let you go, but, uh, I'd love to have you back on if you're willing. Um, yeah. Um, I quickly will end on two questions that I ask everyone. The first one, um, although you've given great advice already, what is a piece of advice that you maybe received or read, especially haven't even touched on the Conrad Hall factor, uh, that you've kind of carried through in your work that stayed with you for some time? doesn't have to be the piece of advice, but just, you know, something that you think about often. And I think I've touched on a lot of it, but since you did yeah. mention Conrad Hall, Con- Con- Connie always had this uh, thing of being, kind of, you're only as good as your worst shot in a film. And he was so, so methodical and really, really 
it, it, it stuck with me that because that was that was someone that just kept on digging and never gave up on every frame. Um, and and what that is is passion. I mean that and that was certainly not ambition. That was pure, unadulterated uh, uh, passion. That just absolute craving to just make the most appropriate, lucid, stimulating image for that piece of narrative. So that's what, that was my, that's what I kind of just saw in, in Connie and always aspired to. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, and the second question is, uh, recommend a movie for people to watch that isn't one of your own. God, so many. Um, I, part of me wants to switch this question going forward to if your movie is going to be in a double feature, what's the other movie? That one might. The, initially, this question was, "What's your favorite movie?" That's a bad question. <laughs> no, I mean recently, just um, you know, I loved. I think I, let me put, let me put a few movies that gave us the boldness in a way, and the encouragement to shoot in in black and white for Belfast because that seems to be something that. I never thought about it too much, but I've had to think about it um, since sure. we've made this. But um, I think it's okay now to shoot in black and white, because as it should have always been, the same way in photography, you have a choice. Um, I don't think it, uh, an audience goes away from it if it's done appropriately and done well. But there were a few milestones along the way that have kind of been really successful black and white films that I think are, are modern and have given us that um, uh, uh, that chance and that kind of, um, I would say, encouragement. Um, and I, I would say that, you know, The Artist was a really big kind of landmark uh, film. And it, there wasn't much of a precedent up until The Artist in modern times of a successful black and white film. I remember um, that release. That was yeah. big. Um, you know, pre that, you could say it's Schindler's list i mean there wasn't but in, in in kind of recently it went from i would say for me it was the artist ida and loveless uh three very modern very successful very different black and white and all of them completely and utterly uh different and nebraska of course sure uh, so i mean there you've got four films four brilliant films all completely and you know, different black and white. Um, and they were all successful. They all talked about the human condition. Um, and um, I think they're, they're just proof that um, uh, uh, you could, uh, a, a modern audience will still appreciate a black and white film told in a modern way. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that isn't like Sin City, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, you know, as a compliment, I must say, I feel like I've lost time speaking to you. So again, we must, uh, must have you back on maybe to talk about death on the Nile when that, uh, you know, kind of comes out maybe in a few months or something, but, um, thanks again so much for your time. That was fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Frame and reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan and distributed by pro video coalition. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark Pelly, and the Ethidar Matbox logo was designed by Nate Truax of Truax Branding Company. 
You can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to ProVideoCoalition.com or YouTube.com slash Owlbot, respectively. And as always, thanks for listening.